by show of hands, how many of you in your life have either been personally impacted by or have uh, lived to see the moral failure of some ministry or pastoral figure in your life? Okay. Leave that up to you. Um, unfortunately, I think when there is some sort of prominent minister uh, that rises to some level of fame within the Christian community, we are almost attuned to wait for some case of moral failure to burst on the scene and just prominently rock the Christian landscape. This has led to church hurt. It's led to many individuals deconstructing and leaving the faith entirely. So we must ask them, why is there such prevalence of these moral infidelities, of these leadership failures within the church? And I answer that question very firmly and very simply with this one statement. The church has often departed from the biblical qualifications for both uh, eldership and generally pastoral ministry. The church has often neglected the proper elder standards. We have replaced strong men with entertaining men. We have replaced biblical men with attractive men, and we have replaced good men with tame men. Thus, when I think of teaching on what it means to be a pastor and what it means to be in pastoral ministry as we enter into this unit, if you will, on pastoral ministry and teaching, I immediately thought, let's take a deep dive into 1 Timothy 3 regarding the qualifications of what it means to be an elder. But then I realized something even more intimidating, uh, particularly as you all are facing uh, preaching practicums, and that is that these moral qualifications are prerequisites for being a good pastor. From there, you have to learn the practical elements of how to teach the Word of God in an effective manner. It's like these are the baseline, right? These are the basics, and then you build up from there. So instead of me just taking a deep dive into moral qualifications only and spending our entire hour on that, um, my goal is to introduce you to content beyond just those qualifications alone. So it's going to be quick, it's going to be upbeat, it's going to be a fast tempo, um, and it's going to be kind of a cursory level overview, which means that I'm not going to be able to defend every statement that I make to the nth degree as I would prefer to. And I'm going to have to state some things as simple fact. So if you wish to disagree with me and, or take a deeper dive into a certain area, please feel comfortable to come and talk afterwards. I would love to have that conversation, but there's only so much I can squeeze into the next three hours. So, um, so on your outline, then, we have five questions. Five questions that I really want to seek to answer tonight. And we're going to start off with, who are elders, right? The most generic place to start. Who are elders? Or, in my parallel outline, becoming a chef. Becoming a chef. The elders, plural, ideally, the elders, plural, ideally, are synonymous with those who are overseers, shepherds, pastors, and are morally qualified male servant leaders who guard, teach, protect, care, pray, exhort, and admonish the church in both doctrine and practice, right? Not just one or the other, not only on practical things and not dead, dry orthodoxy, but in both ways. So if you desire to be an elder, uh, I mean, let's, there we go. Let's, let's pause there. How many of you 
say, I'm not saying the Lord has called me to anything, but just in the back of your head, you're like, maybe someday I would like to be an elder in my, uh, in my local church. Okay, we have a couple people. And, and here's my first thing. That's good, right? That's a good thing. That's what Paul says. But then Paul goes and says this. 1 Timothy 2, 11 through 3, 7. James is up after this. First, first Timothy 2.11. Women should learn quietly and submissively. I do not let women teach men or have authority over them. Let them listen quietly, for God made Adam first, and afterward he made Eve. And it was not Adam who was deceived by, by Satan. The woman was deceived, and sin was the result. But women will be saved through childbearing, assuming they continue to live in faith, love, holiness, and modesty. This is a trustworthy saying. If someone aspires to be a church leader, he desires an honorable position. So a church leader must be a man whose life is above reproach. He must be faithful to his wife. He must exercise self-control, live wisely, and have a good reputation. He must enjoy having guests in his home, and he must be able to teach. He must not be a heavy drinker or be violent. He must be gentle, not quarrelsome, and not love money. He must manage his own household well, having children who respect and obey him. For if a man cannot manage his own household, how can he take care of God's church? A church leader must not be a new believer because he might become proud and the devil would cause him to fail. Also, people outside the church must speak well of him so that he will not be disgraced <coughs> and fall into the devil's trap. So the very first thing in this passage, which runs from First uh, Timothy chapter 2 into chapter 3, is that the office is restricted to men. Women play vital, essential roles within the church, but they do not play this vital, essential role. And Paul is sure to ground this, not in some cultural norm, not in the chauvinism of his day, but in a time-transcendent command by grounding it in Eden, right? He, he doesn't say, oh, the Romans do this. Oh, this is what our culture does. He says, this is why, and he looks back to the fall of man. Now, this is a good desire, but it is not for everyone. And in Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones' book, he says, I do everything I can to discourage people from going into the ministry. And I thought that was a very interesting section. James 3.1. Do not, many of you, become teachers, my brothers, knowing that we will receive a stricter judgment. There is an added weight of spiritual responsibility. In Hebrews, it says, those who must give an account for your souls. It is a high, hefty calling. And make no mistake about it. Uh, Paul, Paul says if he desires the work of an elder, um, make no mistake, it is work. There is hard work involved. You don't quit on uh, you know, a hardworking job to go to the easy life of a minister. This is a high and hefty calling. But Paul shifts then and says, you desire a good thing, so here's what you need to do. Become this kind of person. And so this is my call to you. If you think that you have some sort of desire to go into pastoral ministry, then become a stellar person first. Okay? We cannot have hypocrites leading. People will, people have, and people always get hurt when hypocrites 
are leading in the church. And so he dives into qualifications. Different people count them differently. I tallied up 15 different qualifications. You can count them however you like. The first one is above reproach. Very simply, this means if an elder is accused of some sort of big sin issue in their life, that claim, in a legal sense, is going to be unfounded, unbased. Um, It's a charge that cannot stick. It's a charge that cannot be held against that person. I will say this is not a justification for legalistic standards that are beyond Scripture to be applied to only pastors and not to all Christians, right? I think this is how this verse is often thrown out there. It's like, you got to be above reproach. And no, this, this passage is simply saying that you have to be in a place where charges cannot hold against someone. If it's wrong for an elder, it's wrong for the lay Christian as well and vice versa okay there's not this special legalistic standard to hold pastors to they're humans they make mistakes but they are supposed to be of a higher grade second a one woman man that some people uh, debate about this one particularly a one woman man and this is a a qualification which does not preclude single or biblically justified divorced men from the ministry It is more similar to the Roman description of a woman who, uh, there's a Roman word for it, a a one-husband type of woman. This is basically saying no concubines in in Paul's culture. So it becomes an idiom for faithfulness in marriage. I I think that's the best way to take this, is not saying you have to be married. I mean, that would really contradict a lot of what Paul says about going into the ministry. I think that this is meant to say that this is a kind of person that you look at and say, no, if he's married... He's a faithful man to his wife, and he is going to be faithful to the commitments that he has made. Third one, sober, depending on your translation. When, when I say sober, you probably think of alcohol and drinking. And, and I think that's fair. Yes, that is, that is justified within this context, but it is much broader than that. And we got to have a, a great discussion about this week. It is f- being free from life-dominating forces that are going to cloud your judgment. Uh, this is something, ministry is something that you have to have a particularly clear mind and acumen and spiritual judgment. When you go into the ministry, you are going to run into gray situation after gray situation. If you think everything in life is black and white, you're going to be very, very surprised when you run across some, some sticky situations. And Life is complicated, right? I mean, there are so many life is complicated type moments when you're in the ministry where you have to moderate between two parties that both seem to have a good argument for their position or they hurt me. No, you hurt me. Okay, and how are we going to walk between these? There are a lot of gray situations. And if there are consistent things in your life which dull your spiritual clear-mindedness, you are not yet fit for the ministry. You need to be in a place of a spiritual acumen that can like Solomon deciding between the two mothers, if you will, to be able to say, no, cut the baby in half, right? And have the wisdom to determine between the two in those situations. Next, self-controlled. Interesting Greek word, if you're into the medical field at all. This is a combination of two words for soundness, safety, and phren. what, What medical thing do you have the word phren or phrem in? Anyone? Diaphragm. Yes. So this is a soundness of the inner parts, right? What a, that's a weird way to put it, 
But when I started thinking about self-control, I said, what a great way to put it. You have to have control of what's on the inside. The elder then must be of sound mind where he controls his inward passions. How often do you think Pastor Jim or your pastor, wherever you go to church, get some sort of insulting feedback, right? And we were just talking about this with anonymous feedback forms. How often do you think somebody gets absolutely roasted by someone in the congregation out of the blue, right? They had no idea it was coming and they just decided to take a dump on them. Well, if you are the person receiving that insult, how are you going to take it, right? It's constructive criticism, right? How often do we veil constructive criticism as just an absolute knifing of someone in authority? So how are you going to take that veiled constructive criticism? Um, let's say you have evil, uh, an evil passion in you that's sort of on this power trip of I get to be in charge of people. I get to have authority over people. And yes, there is a certain sense of authority that comes with being a pastor. So how are you going to deal with that inner passion, that anger when someone insults you, that power hungriness when you get to have authority over someone else. On the other hand, if you are consistently sinning in pornography or sexual sin, if you're consistently sinning in anger and you have no control on that internal environment, or you have no discipline and you have no ability to show up for work continually and consistently, then you're not yet fit for eldership. You have to be someone who is a master over their body, over their inward passions. Next up, Paul says respectable or ordered. For those of you that are fans of Jordan Peterson, this is probably one of your favorites in the list because Paul is basically saying that the elder cannot be a chaotic man. He cannot be a man whose life is dominated by chaos. This is it's the same word as the word for world. Welcome, Joanna. So thinking back to Genesis, any reason why the word for world might be translated order here? What did God do? He brought the earth out of chaotic nothingness. And so there's this contrast between cosmos and chaos. <coughs> and so what Paul is saying is that the elder has to be somebody who is consistent. He has to be the type of guy that's going to get something done when he says he's going to get something done. It's not a chaotic, sporadic life. It is somebody who is on top of things, who is well-ordered in what they do. Next is hospitable. Hospitable. This word simply means, and I think your translation intentionally rendered it this way, is a lover of strangers. They have to love strangers. Now, I might be meddling a little bit when I say this, but perhaps you've seen or heard people either say, you know, I just can't stand people, or I hate people, or you see T-shirts with, you know, tired of people, can't stand people, all those sort of remarks. That type of thinking cannot be characteristic of an elder. If you can't just stand people at all, if you cannot love them, if you cannot tolerate being around people, then you are not yet fit for the position of elder. And it can't just be the same people that you enjoy hanging around all the time, just from a practical sense. There are going to be people in a congregation that are, you know, less than your cup of tea. And that's okay. We're not expected to click with everyone, but we are expected to be lovers of everyone. Um, so what happens when you're interacting with someone who knows about 
as much as you do in terms of theology, has 58 life problems that would be solved if they just added another 10% of theology. And they're just annoying, overly needy, and they take a lot of your time. Are you going to have them over? Are you going to take that inevitable hour-long phone call that rehashes the same material as the last hour-long phone call? Are you ready to care for everyone in the flock, not just the ones that you like? That's what it means to be a hospitable elder. Next is capable of teaching. This one's tough, right? Capable of teaching, right? Because there's a lot of good men out there, right? And you can be a genuinely good man. There's genuinely good men in your church. And somebody says, you know what? You should teach sometime. And they get up there and teach. And you walk away saying, they might be well-equipped for the position of deacon after, <laughs> after hearing them teach, right? That is what really distinguishes these two. The deacon qualifications are not so dissimilar if you go later in this passage. This is the thing that sets an elder apart. The good man doesn't necessarily have the gift of teaching, but a good man who is apt to teach can be an elder. In, in our attempt to push back on this very American showmanship, entertainment, and preaching type thing, we have minimized sometimes in some circles, like, oh, you don't need to have, your music doesn't need to be high quality, your oratory skills don't need to be high quality. Yeah, they do. There is a certain amount of mental acumen and oratory excellence that should denote the elder. Uh, this is not to say that they have to be you know, the smoothest speaker ever. But it is to say that they have to have some ability to speak. Why is that? Because what is the elder supposed to do when he gets up there to speak? And we're going to get into this in a moment. But he is supposed to capture hearts. He is supposed to win affections. And he is supposed to plead with sinners to repent. And there is an element of speaking that is the pathos and not just the, uh, the logic portion. And when we are pleading with Christians and non-Christians alike, you need to have the speaking prowess to do this. You need to have the mental abilities to process deep theology and scripture and then take all of that depth and put it somewhere that people can understand. Next, not given to wine. Uh, not given to wine. In, in, uh, in Roman times, they would take water and mix it uh, in parts with wine for purification. Uh, Timothy, uh, Paul's disciple, actually practiced abstinence entirely from wine. This is why you hear Paul saying, hey, Timothy, uh, maybe you should take a little bit of wine for your stomach's sake because you're getting sick off of this terrible water. I am not here to argue that it is wrong to drink as an elder. What I am here to say very simply is that excessive libation, excessive drinking is not something that should be, f you're not fit to be an elder if you are uh, frequenting the bottle too often. Next is a conversive one, which I have paired together. Not violent, but gentle. Not violent, but gentle. This, I mean, this means <laughs> what it says. Not a brawler, not a fighter, not a striker, but someone who is gentle. This is, the gentle word goes on beyond just like a physical gentleness. It's the idea of fairness or a graciousness when you are wronged. So somebody does something wrong to you, is your initial inclination to physically or perhaps even verbally strike back? Or is it to be gracious? It is somebody who does not hold grudges. And I think men struggle in particular with this. And, and there's, there's a sense in which you, you must know how to be tender for those that are hurting. 
right? You, not everyone needs excessive force on every single occasion. There are times when people are just hurting and they need an ear. You need to be able to strike with the iron of truth and fervor. Yet you also need to know when it is time to just simply care for somebody who is already broken down and doesn't need to hear how they're wrong when they already know that they're wrong. There is a time for confrontational strength, but all the more often there is the appropriate time of having your heart deeply moved by the hurts of your flock, by the hurts of your congregation, where I would, I would venture that for every one time there is a need for that confrontational strength. There is, there is the need to shut up and to cry with somebody than to strike them down with your words. There is the time for that. Don't get me wrong. That's where I struggle is being confrontational. But both are necessary. Not quarrelsome or peaceable. This means that you avoid quarrels that just aren't worth the point. You need to be an arbitrator of peace with a clear mind. Um, men learning theology uh, particularly need to learn this grace, that not everything is your hill to die on. Not everything is your hill to die on. Some things, there are good brothers who are brothers and are genuinely brothers, and they disagree, and that's okay. And you can debate and discuss, and it's not a hill to die on. There are some hills to die on, but when tensions are rising over preferences— Love unity more than your own self-selected preferences, okay? It is important to know what those things are, though, and we'll come back to that in a moment as well. Next, not infatuated with the dollar. Um, <coughs> the direction I'm taking this is because of some of the things that I've heard in the group here recently. There has been a ton of influx of that red pill, escape the matrix, type conversation by becoming rich and powerful. Those are the two ways that you quote unquote escape the matrix. And I want to offer particularly to the men in this room that are going through that phase that the preacher is far more powerful than the man who is rich and powerful according to the world. Man may be rich and he may be powerful, but Christians have learned how to quote-unquote escape the matrix in a far deeper sense when they have learned to fear him who is able to kill both the body and the soul in hell. There are few things that are more powerful than a man who cannot be bought. There are few things more powerful than that. And a preacher who is offered money or offered prestige or offered power in exchange for being quiet on some issue, but instead refuses and goes on preaching the truth instead, is a truly powerful man. That is what it means to not be able to be bought. Because the person who loves money, they'll be able to be bought. There is always a price. Uh, manages his household well. Um, if your home is a mess, if your bills are perpetually unpaid, if your Children do not respect authority, our little hellions, or as Vodi would say it, our vipers in diapers. Um, then it is pure deception to think that you can manage your house, uh, not, I'm sorry, that you can manage the household of God well. If you are able to be the solid head of your home, then you are able to be a solid guide for other homes as well. Uh, even just in this small situation here, how often, I would say, does a portrait of solidness invite people who are not so solid, right? Somebody who has some sense of, like, at least they look like they have their life together, right, wrong, or indifferent, 
tends to get people coming to them because people crave somebody who is solid, right, wrong, or indifferent. So if you're not in a solid place, please choose wisely. And not a new convert. Um, this one really, this one really spoke to me uh, particularly. Don't put newbies in power too quickly. Why? There is an allure of sinful ambition. Make no mistake, you have power, you have authority over people. And if you are so young in your faith to think that you are, quote, all that, because somebody somewhere gave you a title and ordained you into the ministry, then you are not ready. If you think a title matters, you're wrong. I mean, it does matter in the, in the biblical sense, right? But I'm saying, like, just because you're now lead pastor of so-and-so church doesn't mean diddly squat, Okay? If you're in a position of power and someone starts arguing with you and your indignant thought is, don't you know who I am? Uh, go repent immediately. Humble yourself quickly because it is coming for you soon. If you have that thought because I am all that, respect my argument because of who I am and you basically play an ad hominem off yourself, man, you are... You're not in a good place. Go repent and repent quickly. And then well thought of outside of, well thought of by outsiders. Uh, they might hate his guts, outsiders, non-Christians. They might despise what he stands for. Uh, and Paul's sort of providing an inclusio here. An inclusio wraps up the end and ties it to the, the beginning. You can see some parallels here. They may not like you, but they have to confess that you are who you say you are, right? If if you put on that easy church facade on Sunday, but then go into work Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, and the people at work say, no, this, this guy's an entirely different person by who you are all day, every day, then you're not fit for eldership yet. If the people at work in other sectors of life that don't see you for one or two hours a week consider you to be a just, equitable, and honorable man, then yes, you are well thought of by outsiders. Okay, so those are the qualifications. That's becoming a chef, right? That's culinary school for the chef and feeding the flock of God. But then we must ask, what do elders do? If that's who they are, then what are those people doing, right? What do elders do? Well, they are serving dinner, so to speak. They are feeding the flock of God. They lead, they teach, they preach, they protect, they shepherd, they exhort, they admonish for the sake of sound doctrine, they visit the sick, they pray and deal with doctrinal issues. <clears throat> Acts 6, 1 through 4. Let's start here. Now in these days, when the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in their daily distribution. And the twelve summoned the full number of the disciples and said, It is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good So there are good needs that are out there, and there are good things that need to be done in the ministry, like feeding widows. I think we'd all agree, you know, that's, that's kind of important. Um, it is important to feed and take care of the widows within your church. Um, but as a pastor, guess what? You're not able to do it all. The office of deacon has been glossed over in our churches so often. Um, but what is, what, are, what is the apostles' response here? They say, you know what, you're right, I, I need to go wait on tables. No, they say, 
It's not right to quit praying. It's not right to quit teaching. We have to dedicate people to do that. And they went on continuing praying and teaching. And so, yeah, elders need to be concerned about the needs in their church. But what is the more primary responsibility of the elder? What is, what is the thing that I want to focus on here tonight? I mean, I, I listed off 17 things that they do. But what is the primary thing that an elder does? He prays, and then he teaches, he ministers the word of God to people. So what is this primary role? 2 Timothy 2, 1 Timothy 4. Do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who has no need to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth. 1 Timothy 4. Command and teach these things. Don't let anyone look down on you because you are young, but set an example for the believers in speech, in conduct, in love, in faith, and in purity. Unless I come, devote yourself to the public reading of scripture, to preaching, and to teaching. Do not neglect your gift, which was given to you through prophecy when the body of elders laid their hands on you. Be diligent in these matters. Give yourself wholly to them so that everyone may see your progress. Watch your life and doctrine closely. Preserve in them because, or because persevere in them because if you do, you will save both yourself and your hearers. So, Elders, they teach, but what do they teach? Do they get up and give a TED Talk? Do they talk about the recently published book? No. I mean, yes, a lot of them do. But no, uh, they should be preaching the Word of God. And so they need to model how to handle the Word of God rightly um, before their congregation. So if you are in the teaching practicums, this this is a great time to tune back in if I've lost you, um, because this is some of what we are expecting when we do teaching practicums. Number one, let the text be the driver. Let the text be the driver. We expect it to be expository. I understand that there are times in life where there is a moment needed for a good topical sermon. I have no beef with that. But by and large, teaching should be expository. Select a passage. Understand that passage. And then understand the surrounding context. And understand how it all fits together. And understanding what's happening with the original audience. One way I like to think about it, understand every word individually, then understand the sentences together, and then understand the arc of the passage as a whole. Second, understand scripture in light of other scriptures. Solid hermeneutical principle right there. What does this mean? It means think theologically. Right here, these three things. These are the things that I want you to think about. First, Systematic theology. I'll give you some examples. Let's say you're going to preach on a passage that deals with the doctrine of man. Systematic theology says, what does the Bible say about the doctrine of who man is as a whole? What does the Bible say about that? Historical theology says, what has the church said about the doctrine of man for all of these 2,000 years? And then biblical theology says, how does the doctrine of man fit within the storyline of Scripture? And so when you come to a text, once you've understood it in isolation, then understand it in the context of Scripture as a whole. Understand the topic in Scripture. Understand historical bits about that topic. And then understand it like it's a beautiful story, because it is. And it all fits together and has this wonderful arc that you can understand like a beautiful novel. Third, understand how every point in Scripture is related to the gospel and to Jesus Christ. For instance, the doctrine of man. See how Christ is the true man, right? Let's say it's patience. And you see, okay, my text is about patience. That's the theme. We can see that only the gospel can change the heart 
to be patient and to have a, and to have that renewed fruit of patience, right? Every passage can relate back to Christ and to the gospel in some sense. Piper does a wonderful job in drawing this out. Our preaching should be expository exaltation. Our worship, worship time does not end when music ends at church. Worship should continue into the preaching. Preaching should be a declaration glorifying God for who he is, glorifying Christ, glorifying the gospel. And when you think that you're going to get up there and teach, I want you to think I am exalting the glory of God now by the words that I'm saying. And then fourth, fourth point. Up until this point, you've understood the passage. You've become a person who is desperately desirous to see this truth of whatever the text is saying is lived out in your life. But then fourth, you got to cook supper, right? You got to cook supper. Uh, one pastor said to me after rightly critiquing my sermon in retrospect, I presented a lot of raw ingredients to the congregation, but I never cooked supper for him. And not everyone in your congregation is yet equipped to be a chef. We want to get them there, but some people need a meal delivered for them. So you are the chef for your congregation. What does that mean? I'm using an analogy here. What am I talking about? This... This shepherd must know the flock in such a sense that he takes the natural instruction of the text and he calls out sin, or he comforts the congregation in some sense, or he works to alter their perspective on God in some sense for the congregation. He may add an illustration here and he may outline the materials in digestible ways then. So you can, you can take tons of these references and you can say I have 50 verses on patience but if you get up there and read 50 verses on patience people are going to walk away and say yeah I mean it was good he talked about something with the Bible and patience and stuff and things but they're not going to have anything to grasp when they walk away and so one of the things that I do and I hope maybe this will be helpful for you is when I'm teaching on a passage verses fly to mind so I jot them down I jot them down on a piece of paper but I outline the text and then I come back to that list and after outlining the text I insert those verses to support where it's appropriate and guess what some of them might not fit and that's okay that's okay we don't need to drop everything that you know into one sermon Dale Carnegie, great uh, book on public speaking, uh, says that the effective speaker should have so much information in his head that he, when he goes to speak, he really struggles with what to keep and what to pare down, right? You should know the topic so thoroughly that you're just wanting to overflow in the information that you're presenting, right? When somebody has questions for you afterwards, that makes it a whole lot easier too. But that makes it really tough to know what to include and what not to. But it should feel like a struggle, <laughs> to cut out things when you're going to teach. That's how thorough your knowledge should be. And then five, five, add the secret sauce, right? Add the secret sauce, maybe a little habanero sauce. And I have to get this in there, in, in there somewhere. Don't get lost in the sauce. Don't get lost in the sauce, but add a little bit of the secret sauce. Um, for our new friends who haven't heard me teach as much, I, I used to say lost in the sauce way too much when I would teach. But add a little bit, the right helping of the secret sauce. What do I mean? You've understood the passage. You've understood in the broader context of scripture. You've seen how it ties to Jesus and the gospel. You've developed illustrations. You've developed outlines uh, to be a coherent structure. Now what, right? You're there, but now you, you've developed the sermon, but now you have to preach the sermon. And this is where uh, Martin Lloyd-Jones uses the famous phrase, 
logic set on fire, right? Your logic has to be on fire. The spirit must move. You must be authentic when you're coming into the pulpit. You have to pour yourself out in love to congregation, believing that you're passing on something more than info. And when you preach, you have to preach like a man dying to dying men. Preach like a dying man to dying men. It might be the nerdiest topic, and I've had people give me this feedback, but if you have fire for some random nerdy topic, then it's going to resonate with your congregation. They will care about it if you care about it. And if you, if you look bored up there, guess who else is going to be bored? Everyone in the room, right? Everyone's going to be bored if you're bored. And so you have to be excited about what you're talking about. Okay, those two questions down. How do elders do it? Or what's the service like? You know, what's, what's the quality of the wait staff at this restaurant? First, they have to, I love food analogies more than running analogies, I'm sorry. <laughs> um, they're not heavy handed and they're doing it from a willing heart. Uh, Hebrews uh, 10 says they have to do it with joy. First Peter is a classic text here. First Peter 5, one through four. Second Timothy, be ready. So there are two poles that have, excuse me, that have to be managed when you come into being an elder. There is the first pole of firm strength and uh, confrontation. And then on the other hand, there is gentleness and tenderness. Make no mistake, a primary function of preaching is to be a staunch defender of the truth. 2 Timothy 4.2. reprove, rebuke, and exhort, right? That's a necessary function of being an elder, and it's a hard one, too. Um, it, it should be a hard one, actually, I think, now that I say that. Um, but there is a time to say enough is enough, and we're going to draw our line in the sand here. Enough is enough. For instance, the church of God is against the slaughter of the unborn. The church of God clearly defines that marriage is between one man and one woman. The church of God fully defends that Jesus is fully God and fully man. There are certain things that you don't compromise on, and they are things to stand on and to fight for. Elders are shepherds. They should be a little bit skeptical, right? There is an element of being a leader where you're like, oh, I don't, let's, let's see. There's an element of healthy skepticism that you have to protect your sheep from sheep or from wolves in sheep's clothing. Good shepherds don't idly watch sheep die. You stand between your people and predators. And I mean that both physically and spiritually. If you're going into the ministry, there will probably be a time when you stand between your people and predators in a physical way. That's just a reality. And you need to be, you need to be on the lookout for those people. Um, men stand for truth and they protect those who are their own. Very simply. Um, but on the other hand, 
gentleness and tenderness is also a defining trait of what it means to be an elder. First Thessalonians 2, 2 Timothy uh, 2, and then my Isaiah passages be ready. First Thessalonians. Nor did we seek glory from people, whether from you or from others, though we could have made demands as apostles of Christ. But we were gentle among you, like a nursing mother taking care of her own children. So being affectionately desirous of you, we were ready to share with you not only the gospel of God, but also our own selves, because you had become very dear to us. For you remember, brothers, our labor and toil. We worked night and day that we might not be a burden to any of you while we proclaimed to you the gospel of God. You are witnesses, and God also, how holy and righteous and blameless was our conduct toward you believers. For you know how, like a father with his children, we exhorted each one of you and encouraged you and charged you to walk in a manner worthy of God, who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. Second Timothy 2. And the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but must be kind to everyone, able to teach, not resentful. Opponents must be gently instructed, and the hope of God will grant them repentance, leading them to a knowledge of the truth. These are characteristics, gentleness and tenderness, are characteristic of the apostolic ministry because they were characteristic of Christ. In 1 Thessalonians, where Paul refers to Christ, or refers to um, the Lord's servant there, it looks back to Isaiah's description of the Messiah. And what do we see in Isaiah? Isaiah 4, 40, and 42. Um, please have your passages read. Isaiah 11, sorry. Uh, Isaiah 11, 4. My bad. But with righteousness he shall judge the poor and decide with equity for the needs of the earth. He shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth, and with the breath of his lips he shall kill the wicked. 40, 10 through 11. See, the sovereign Lord comes with power, and he rules with a mighty arm. See, his rewards is with him, and his recompense accompanies him. He tends his flock like a shepherd. He gathers the lambs in his arms, and he carries them close to his heart. He gently leads them that have leads those that have young. Forty-two. Behold, my servant, in my, whom I uphold, my chosen, in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. He will not cry aloud or lift up his voice or make it heard in the street. A bruised reed he will not break, and a faintly burning wick. He will faithfully bring forth justice. He will not grow faint or be discouraged until he has established established justice in the earth and accustomed to wait for his own. Jesus is described as both fierce and just and yet gentle and lowly, right? Jesus is fierce. He is has the rod of iron and yet he's not going to break a bruised reed. And when we come to Jesus in the Gospels, that's precisely what we see. Jesus is harsh with the religious elites, and yet he's so tender and gentle with the broken down. On the whole, Jesus is more extreme than I am willing to be. I tend to be neutral, right? Because neutral is easy. Neutral is not vulnerable. Confronting somebody is vulnerable, and crying with someone requires that you put yourself out there. And yet here we see Jesus able to to do both. And so I ask you, especially if you have a desire for the ministry, are you deafeningly neutral? Men, particularly, few of you are inclined to do both. Few of you are balanced on this point. 
You are either inclined towards confrontation, you're a fighter by birth, a warrior who wants to set the world straight. Thank you. We need you, right? We need that in the church. Some of you are inclined towards tenderness. You're in touch with your emotions. You're tender. You're caretakers by nature. Thank you. We need you too. But men classically struggle to do both. Men classically struggle to be both. And if we're going to lead in our families, in our churches, and we're going to lead the nation, then we have to be able to be both fierce and loving. We have to control our anger to defend with devastating effectiveness, right? We have to be devastating. And yet we need to know how to turn that off and listen to a young girl cry or to hold a baby or to listen to stupid emotional struggles with patience, with patience. We cannot afford to be too passive or too aggressive or certainly passive aggressive. The good man is a dangerous man who has perfected control over his own self, okay? A good man is dangerous. He is devastating in the wrong context, but he learned to be controlling, uh, controlling of his own emotions and tender towards others. When do elders do it? Fourth question. <clears throat> the timeliness of dinner, right? Got to continue with the outline. I have to, have to keep it going sometime. The timeliness of dinner. When do elders do their work? Always. <laughs> Always. Elders are always eldering. Okay? And I say that in two senses. First, you're going to teach on topics when people don't necessarily want to hear it, and there are times when people do want to hear it. Second Timothy four, two through five. There are times where congregations genuinely have this deep thirst for the things and the knowledge of God. And I, I, I feel so blessed to teach you guys because I feel that really often here. And I, I hope that someday you guys get to experience that. This is a very unique group in that sense. So there are times when you need to cater to what people want to learn. And then there are also times when the audience is not willing to hear the truth that you have to say, but you have to continue to say it anyways culture is becoming progressively more intolerant of contrary ideas in general. There is a cultural sunset on classical liberalism that allows freedom of speech, which is tantamount to freedom of thought. And so let's give a scenario here. Let's say you're a pastor at a large church on a significant tract of land, and some government guy in a suit comes to you someday and says, if you don't affirm gender transitions for minors, we are going to be removing your tax-exempt status on this land. Doesn't sound like a big deal, right, if you're not in church finance, but whoa, okay, that's a, that's a lot of property tax there all of a sudden. Your church, uh, you know, membership's already been declining and giving's already been declining, and so that's going to put it right over the edge, right, and that church is probably going to have to close its doors if they lose the tax-exempt status. So, you can't afford that, and it's easy to sit here and say, well, we're going to preach to stick to preaching the social truth. But when it gets difficult is when congregants question if that's truly loving, right? And there's all sorts of pragmatic justifications. Congregants are going to argue from pragmatism that if you just would stop pushing this one issue, 
then all of this other good ministry could go on, right? If, if we just compromise on this one thing, then all of these good things that we do, they can keep going. But if, if you don't give in, then all these other good things are going to fail. So what happens then when people who are supposedly Christian side with a godless society and you start questioning, hey, am I the crazy one? Am I losing my mind, right? And maybe I should compromise on this. Every single other person in here seems to think we should compromise on this. You're going to question if you're right. So how do you preach the word of God when it is frigidly out of season? You have to know the word and you have to know your hills to die on and you decide those not in the heat of the battle. You have to decide your hill to die on before you ever enter the battle of Waterloo, so to speak. You have to decide your non-negotiables now or they will get steamrolled. They will get walked over under the financial and interpersonal pressures of ministry. Decide your non-negotiables now. We can have a discussion about what those are, but you have to decide them now. Um, now, always in a second sense, Acts twenty thirty one. Therefore, be alert, remembering that three years I did not cease night or day to admonish everyone with tears. People don't need help on a nice time schedule. Have you ever noticed that? Um, so you're always going to be doing the work of an elder. Not just always in the big sense, but always, right? Somebody always has a problem, and you need to be ready to sacrifice comfort and sleep to tend to the needs of your flock. People always have issues, and I'm not saying that you don't need to recharge, and I'm not saying that you shouldn't be present with your, fam with your family. You should. There should be times where you unplug and spend time. Okay, I'm not, no, I, I've said it, I've, right? There's my second paragraph clause. I've said that. What I am saying, what I am suggesting is that you're going to get a 3 a.m. phone call where somebody says, hey, I have a gun to my head right now. Or it's self-harm, right? And they're struggling with cutting or something terrible, right? What are you going to do? Are you going to roll over and go back to sleep? I, I mean, right. I, I mean that seriously, right? You're, like, theoretically, it's like, no, I, you know, but you're tired, right? And you're on the phone at like 2 a.m. What are you going to do in those moments? Are you going to be short and cranky with somebody who's in need? Or are you going to say, hey, one of the things Paul sacrificed was sleep, and that's what it means to be a minister of the Word of God. Somebody sh shares with you that they're being sexually assaulted, and you're the first person they've shared it with, and they need your help to get out now. What are you going to do? You're going to be up, right? You should, you should be. You should shed tears with them. You should work to help. And people don't have problems on a nice time schedule. We idealize always to mean the persecuted church, right? I'm always going to preach the truth. But are you ready for always to mean a couple hours of sleep? That's far more common. And it's far more real, and it'll do far more benefit or damage to your congregation depending on how you respond. Okay? Those are very real things. They're real in this room. Okay? And don't think that they're not. Finally, why be a chef at all? Why does an elder do what he does? This is the most fundamental question, right? And after reading um, Martin Lloyd-Jones' book this week, the chapters that we had to read, I would, ha I would have to add to my outline here, because you can't not. 
you can't not be in ministry, right? It, it's like this ultimate sense of determinism that no matter what you do, you can't get away from it. It's what you love more than anything else. But why do you suffer for a congregation? Why do you take that call at 3 a.m. about suicide or sexual abuse? Why? Why is it worth it? Because it's, it's not fun, actually. You might, you know, there's a sense in which I idealize it, right? Like you want to feel good about yourself. It, it sounds enjoyable, and it is to some degree, but it's heavy. And then you, you hang up that phone call, and guess what you get? Another one from somebody else, and it's really, really hard. Why would you do that? Why would you subject yourself to that sort of life? Yes, you love the congregation, but what is the real reason why behind our preaching, behind our discipleship, behind our care for people? The preaching and service of a faithful elder is done that Christ might be magnified and glorified above all. And I've included a string of verses because this is, I mean, this is the culmination here. The ministry... Don't lose sight of this. It's so easy to lose sight of this, whether by your own bad motives or even thinking I'm doing this for other people. Colossians 1, Ephesians 3, 1 Corinthians 1 and 2, Galatians 6, Luke 24. Let's, um, let's start with Colossians 1. If you have a verse that hasn't been read, it's going to be re- read now. Him we proclaim. That's why the toil in the ministry. Ephesians 3, 8, and 13. To me, to the very least of all saints who are God's chosen, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unfathomable riches of Christ and to enlighten all people as to what the plan of the mystery is what for the ages has been hidden in God who created all things so that the multifaced wisdom of God might now be made known through the church of the rulers and the authorities in the heavenly places. This was in accordance with the eternal purpose which he carried out in Christ Lord, in Christ, excuse me, Christ Jesus our Lord, in whom we have boldness and confident access through faith in him. Therefore I ask you, do not become discouraged about tribulations in your behalf, since they are your glory. For this reason I bend my knees before the Father, for whom every family in heaven and on earth derives its name. First uh, Corinthians two two. For I determined not to know anything among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. Galatians six fourteen. Uh, but far be it from me to boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, 
by which he would, by which the world has been crucified to me, and I to the world. Luke twenty four twenty five through twenty seven. And he said, oh, some of the some of the. Let me try again. Some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just as the woman women had said, but him they did not see. And he said to them, O foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets had spoken. Was it not necessary that Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? I may have three, oh, tw- and the beginning, Yeah, I, that's what it is to be said. I just yep. read it wrong. You're good. And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in, in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. That's what Jesus said. He, he went through the Bible and talked about himself because it's everywhere. Right? And so what we do when we preach, when we minister, why we minister, what we minister is Christ and Christ magnified and Christ exalted. And the difficulty with this is that there's magnifying Christ or magnifying Sam when you get up to speak. Right? And I, I would contend that the sinful nervousness comes from this. The antidote to sinful nervousness in the pulpit is magnifying Christ. Often we are nervous because we want people to think well of our sermon or to think well of us. Um, but we must only be healthfully nervous to see Christ glorified and Christ exalted and for people to grasp that. That's what we should be in awe of to uh, a like, wow degree when we come into the pulpit. So as it goes for people, the preacher's job is to help them fall in love with Jesus, a real love that changes both the affections and the actions. When you stand before a group of people, if they have Christ in them already, seek to grow that Jesus by seeing more Jesus in the text. And if they do not have Jesus yet, then preach in a way that Jesus might take root within them. In the broader sense, our preaching is not just for men, though. Our preaching is a confession before God. Our preaching should declare to God our great love for Him, our adoration of Him, our joy in Him, and our unworthiness to come into the pulpit and speak about His holiness. It should speak of our exaltation and our devotion to Him. And getting deep into methods and getting deep into these communication techniques, that's fine. It is actually good, and it's a good thing sometimes. But the best preaching, I think this is so fair, I think the best preaching that you have ever heard in your life is preaching where the preacher has stepped back in stunned awe of Christ and is trying with just a feeble hand to unveil the glory of the Savior for the congregation. And, you know, just one small glimpse behind the curtain. And so one quick summary, right? We've asked these five questions and detailed all of this, but in a sentence... Feed his sheep as an under-shepherd, right? You are, you are a shepherd, but you're an under-shepherd. Feed his sheep and feed them well. And how do you feed them well? You feed them with the word of God. You feed them with the word of God. St. Patrick, um, in his Trinitarian prayer, <clears throat> said something which I could think of nothing else to close with. It should be our motto in preaching and teaching because it's exactly what our preaching and teaching should be about. Christ with me, Christ before me, Christ behind me, Christ in me, Christ beneath me, Christ above me, Christ on my right, Christ on my left, Christ when I lie down, Christ when I sit down, Christ in the heart of every man who thinks of me, Christ in the mouth of every man who speaks of me, Christ in the eye that sees me, Christ in the ear that hears me. That's what somebody should walk away 
from your preaching and teaching saying, wow, Christ everywhere, Christ in the messenger, Christ in the sermon itself. Okay? Josh, you, you'd be willing to close us in prayer? No? Thank you. Dear Lord, I pray that you would help us to better understand how amazing you are, how utterly how hard it is for us to actually describe the complete nature of Two things. Um, if you feel inclined to fill out the feedback form, it's my practicum. It's also very little different than usual. Um, so just slide that back to me at some point if you if you are going to fill it out. If you don't, no hard feelings. I'm not a big fan of feedback forms myself. <laughs> um, so I'm pretty bad at giving feedback. But um, uh, beyond that, we have uh, two worship songs tonight, and Josh said, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to pick ones that you know, Sam, since you're on the worship team, and then 50% of the two, I do not know. <laughs> so I learned a song this week. Um, Good job. But um, worship, worship the Lord, right? Sing out, actually, actually participate in, in sing. Oh, yeah, the beans go on that.
hear all them back cracks?
also called my school friends with the LLM.